we're going to welcome up our friend to share with us this morning. So you guys are in for a treat. <laughs> Don't be so sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, good to be here. First Peter is, uh, is where we're going to be. And... Uh, we're going to do our best to put this on the screen for you so you can kind of see where I'm going and uh, why I'm saying the things that I'm saying. As I looked at First Peter, I was uh, baffled by the amount of <laughs> different crazy uh, heavy themes and uh, so we will do our best. I, don't, I have no idea how far I'm going to get. Uh, in these sessions as I go, and so we're going to do our best to just fire through this material. What's cool about it, uh, in doing it this way, is that um, you get to uh, kind of let the Bible uh, kind of define the topics and the ideas versus just me coming up with stuff. So we're able to see kind of the flow of a biblical book given to us. Peter writes to a church that's going through extreme suffering. Um, people are persecuting them. They're going through difficult trials in their life. And Peter writes to them to kind of say, okay, I'm going to give you a whole theology on life, uh, on, on how to do everything from understand salvation to uh, in the later chapters, if we ever get there, uh, marriage and all kinds of different things. And so, uh, okay, here we go. So he starts off and he says uh, he starts to introduce who he is and so he says Peter all right so stop there um, oh I'm down I'll need to uh, should we tape it okay here we go all right well just yeah I don't know if you want to okay uh, okay so Peter Starts off by introducing himself, and as I talked about last night, he was this um, very interesting disciple who, uh, he ends up, you know, being central to the founding of the church, and uh, he, but he was kind of the guy who would ask random questions, and of course he gets in that moment with Jesus, where Jesus says, who do people say that I am, and he defines, hey, this is who you are, and then Jesus says, well, actually what that means is suffering, which is very interesting for this book, and then Peter rejects suffering, goes, no, that's not really the way the Messiah is, and then Peter, uh, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, never a good thing. Uh, to be called Satan by Jesus, but that's what Peter's life was. He was a guy, of course, walked on water, and then he kind of started to doubt, and he started to sink. And so uh, Peter has this whole history, and now here he is, Jesus is gone, and this is years and years later, maybe uh, 10, 15, 20 years later, and he's writing this letter to a church. So he's introducing himself, and he introduced himself as an apostle. Uh, and so we all take kind of uh, inspiration from the fact that Peter was a regular guy. You're regular people. I'm a regular guy that God could ever use you. He can use you even though you might be a disaster, even though you might not be the smartest in the room. He's going to use you to do great things. Of course, Peter went on to do things, and he calls himself an apostle. This is the Greek word uh, apostolos. It means to be sent out, called out and sent out. So this is kind of him saying, I'm a, I'm a missionary type person. I like to start churches and, and of course there's a spiritual gift called apostleship in the church. Uh, oftentimes we don't talk about it, but we more focus on pastors and shepherds and teachers. Uh, but you need apostle types too. Uh, people who lead church planting networks and missionaries who are sent places. And maybe that's some of you. Maybe you're not supposed to stay where you live in the suburbs or whatever you do in life. You're actually supposed to be sent. You're supposed to go out. You're supposed to move to some country. You're supposed to plant a church. You're supposed to oversee things that are actually sent things for people who actually need to hear about Jesus. And that was Peter. He lived in a particular area, but then he said, hey, I'm actually defined by being sent. And so some of you might need to actually hear that word from God that you're a sent one, that you're actually supposed to go. And sent people are the kinds of people who uh, can think through areas and think through what do these people actually need. That's what the apostolic gifting is. It's an evangelistic, it's an entrepreneurial thing. It's like, 
Um, uh, it's like when you go into a town. So out of all the kind of giftings, I have about three or four giftings, and apostle is one of my giftings. And what that means is, is I can go into a town and pretty quickly discern out the kind of church that would probably do well reaching this town, whether I've ever been to that town or not. So I can fly into Edmonton and be like, okay, this is the kind of town. I unfortunately had to go there once. Uh, actually, I had to go there twice. I didn't know that. Um, I actually flew. It was, it was funny. I met a guy who was candidating for a position at our church uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was in the church, and I walked up to him. And, uh, and, and I don't know if you're like me, but there's certain information that when I, when I experience it, sometimes it happens with a lot of your names, I just, once the information there, I just hit delete on my brain because there's only so much information that can kind of be in my brain. So I'm like, hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm like, hello, and then I'm like, well, delete. All right, hopefully you never have to say her name again. And that's kind of how I function in life. And so I went to Edmonton and I spoke at this thing and I met these people. I didn't know this. So this guy's candidating for a job the other day. And I walk up to him like, hey, he's like, I'm from Edmonton. Oh, perfect, man. I've never been there. And he's like, no, you totally have been there. Like, I went to a thing, and you spoke at it. I'm like, oh, no, I don't think I've been there before, bro. He's like, no, totally. And he's like, and he was nice. He was like, no, I think you've been there. And then he kind of walked away. And then I went on his Facebook page because he was canning. So I started scrolling around, and there's straight up a picture of me with him and his wife going, ah. And they're like, this was the greatest day of my life. I met my hero. And I'm like, dude, this, I just delete. All right, so anyways, uh, I delete that. So then he says this. This isn't working, is it? All right, we'll have to figure that out. But uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so we talked about this is obviously all about Jesus. Um, to those, if you got your Bibles, you can see it. To those who are elect exiles. So this word exile is a very important word. It means that uh, people are living in a place that's really not their home. And here's the beautiful part of it. He's actually physically and spiritually making a point here about people who are Christians who live in these different areas. So exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And, and so he's saying, um, but there's this beautiful exile image to Christianity. There's people, there's philosophers, Stanley Howard Voss wrote a book years ago where it's about the idea that you and I are actually living living exiles, that we have a home called heaven, but we're living on earth still. And so in a sense, we're actually exiles. We have a value system. We have, I understand, we have experiences that are kind of from another world, but here we are sitting in the world, living as exiles, just like Israel did in Babylon. And they're sitting there and they're trying to be faithful to God, but they're in the midst of all different definitions of reality. This is what sexuality is. This is what money is. This is what power is. This is what work is. This is what family is. And they're living in the tension of actually being exiles. That's the tension you feel in your life every day. The idea that I want to follow Jesus in my life, and yet the world around me tells me I should be doing this with money. I should be doing this with my marriage. I should be doing this with relationships. I should be doing this. You're living in the tension of being someone who's living in exile. You live in a culture that defines sexuality this way, money this way. It says that you should live for the weekends. All the, It says you should do this with power, this with your work. All of those things, they're exile definitions. And you have to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of exile. That's the pressure you feel. Every single one of us, every single day. And then he says this, according to, verse 2, the foreknowledge of God. Now, this is obviously a massively uh, controversial issue because it's talking about God foreknowing things. And he's doing it for a people who are living in exile. So he's saying, actually, the foreknowledge of God caused you to be in the context of exile, meaning you're living in this tension where, like, if you've ever felt the sense that you, um, C.S. Lewis put it this way, he said, um, 
If you have senses in your life that you were, that nothing in this world can satisfy, it's because you were made for another world. Do you feel in life that there's nothing that ultimately satisfies and brings the meaning and joy and purpose of your life? You go after this, you go after the marriage, you go after the relationship. You, you thought, when I go through Instagram, I, I see all these young people and they're like, man, I know my marriage, that's what's gonna heal me. That's what's gonna give me the greatest joy in my life. That's what's gonna give me the greatest satisfaction. And on that wedding day, everything's pretty. And you can tell on their Instagram, like I didn't get married during Instagram years, so our, our pictures don't look as stupid as some of yours do. But, but yours say, oh, you fulfill me and my husband, oh, he's so satisfied, and we're so perfect, and everyone's dressed up, and everything's like, oh, everything's so great, and everything's so perfect, and I just want to fast forward 15 years where he can't even go to the grocery store without FaceTiming you, all right, and go, I don't know, is this the right mayonnaise, all right, and you're mad at him, and you're like, you're an idiot, why can't you do this, and she's way madder than she used to be, she's miserable, it seems sometimes, but she wasn't like this when we were dating, that's what, that's reality. And you look to your marriage for ultimate fulfillment and joy, and you're not going to get it. Or you look to your job, and there's never enough reputation. There's never enough. Uh, you look to money, but there's never enough money. There's never enough square footage. There's never enough. All this stuff is ultimately fleeting because C.S. Lewis says nothing in this world is going to satisfy you ever. Why? Because you weren't made for this world. That's the point. Nothing in this world will ever satisfy you. I, uh, I got a friend. I talked to him a couple years ago, and the thing he was dealing with in his life was he was saying... I've been a Christian my whole life. I've got a great family. I've got great kids. I've got great all this stuff. And then he tells me, the other day, I walked into this guy's house, and he has this experience where he lets me smoke this stuff, and my, my whole body falls back, and I enter into a whole other realm of reality for 15 minutes. And he goes, and if heaven could be half that good, I'm telling you, it's the greatest feeling on the planet. And he starts experimenting with all these drugs. What's he, and I'm like, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, don't worry. I'm connecting into some kind of ultimate spiritual reality. You don't understand, bro. The veil was pulled back. I felt, and I don't even know if I believe in God anymore, but I felt some existential experience. I'm like, no, no, here's what is happening, dude. There was a drug and it was titillating some piece of your frontal cortex, all right? And then it wore off. That's all that. You didn't experience anything. You're dumb. All you did was the drug went ding, 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 ding. Same thing as me taking an Ativan or a, or a Claritin, all right? That's all that happened. You took a drug. There isn't any. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's, he's looking for experience. He's got a great family. He's got a great job. He had a great faith. Great. And he's looking for more. He keeps going deeper. He needs now these experiential realities to keep him entertained. Why do we have that? Because we have this law. We are exiles. We are sitting here in spiritual exile saying, I want something more. I want what, and the gospel, of course, says the only thing that's ever going to do that is Jesus himself. He's going to fulfill that. He's going to give that to you, not because your circumstances are good. That's what he's about to lay down. Your circumstances could be awful, which is what he's going to, we'll probably have to hit tomorrow. Your circumstances, you could go through extreme suffering and extreme trial and still have contentment, not because you have good square footage or a nice car or the greatest marriage on the planet. That will not give you contentment in life. It's because you have Jesus in the midst of the pain. That's his point. That's what he's going to say. That's that's why you can live as exiles. And so he says all of that is to the four, according to the foreknowledge of God, meaning God actually doesn't just know what's going to happen. He's actually involved in it, that he knows everything that's going to happen. And not only does he know this is the tension of the whole Bible as he goes through it, it's that he's in it. And then what's great about this, and, and I remember um, 
a few months ago, I was on this, uh, this golfing trip with this guy. And we were sitting uh, afterwards, we're sitting around, and he looked at me and he said, hey, listen, bro, um, I sometimes, you know, listen to you and I talk to you all the time uh, about these different things. And he said, one idea that I hate, I think it's the worst biblical idea that you have and that you teach about is that God somehow, you know, chose people or God kind of knew what was going on before it was ever done. And God's the one who sovereignly moves. He goes, that's ridiculous. It's not biblical. I can't believe you believe that. I said, okay, well, why don't you tell me right now what the better version of you, you tell me biblically what the better version is. And he says, well, you know, I just feel like it's a bad idea. He starts giving me all these emotional explanations. I said, okay, hold on a second. I said, let me explain why I think what I think. And I started to explain to him and I said, go back to the history of Israel. God could have done anything. He chose who, what happened? Did Abraham just say, oh, you know, God, I think you should use me to found Israel. Or did God say, I'm going to choose Abraham? Well, God chose Abraham. Okay. So then what happened when he chose Israel? Did he choose Israel? Did Israel choose? Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. God chose Israel. And then what? I, so I started to go through these things and he started, I, just go, I said, no, no was in the ark. You know, you got salvation. You have eight people who are saved and Peter makes a big deal of it. And Peter starts saying, you know what the beautiful thing is? It's not that it, because we don't struggle with the fact that everyone in the world got judged by God. In the Noah story, we're like, yeah, everyone got judged by God. They deserved it. The beautiful thing is that God saved eight. He elected, he chose eight people not to kill. And none of us struggle. We tell our kids that story. We're like, hey, children. And the children love it. It's a great, why do children like this story? Because there's animals and rainbows. I get it. It's the craziest story. God is physically slaughtering and drowning everybody. And the kids are like, yee, they love it. They're like, there's a giraffe and there's rhinos, right? And we're like, no, actually the story's about God going, but he chose eight. And the beautiful thing is Spurgeon said, what's supposed to blow your mind, what's supposed to make you struggle is not that God killed everybody. It's that he chose eight. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What's supposed to blow your mind is not Esau I hated. Esau deserved to be hated. What's supposed to blow your mind is Jacob I loved. The fact that God loves anybody, chooses anybody, is the glory of God. That's the point. If you start out with a default setting that says we all deserve good things, then of course it's a struggle that he killed the whole world and he chose eight. But if you start out with man, we are sinful. Man, we, we sin against Jesus, even if you're Christians, every single day. What do I deserve in the end? If you start out there, then, I mean, my kid, listen, my kids, uh, uh, two weeks ago, I'm in the backyard, and I'm, so my wife got these uh, flowers, and, uh, she, and I'm, I'm kind of a little obsessed with them, I'm a little distracted with them to keep them alive, I'm not saying there's anything in our past that would make me think that maybe she would buy hundreds of dollars of flowers and they'll die a couple weeks later, I'm not saying that's ever happened, I'm just saying she showed up from the flower place, with a lot of flowers. And my buddies are always like, the bill on that would be interesting. I'm like, what are you talking about? Isn't it like two bucks a piece? He's like, no. So anyway, so she plants all this flower. So now I'm like financially invested in these things doing well. And so I'm like watering them all the time. But for some reason, she gets really defensive when I water them. Because when I water them, it says to her, you don't think I can keep these things alive, right? So she's like, why do you keep watering the flowers? I'm like, because I love the flowers. I want to keep them alive. She's like, yeah, it's because you think I'm not going to keep them alive. Because you think I'm bad at keeping things alive. I'm like, no, no, no. Just the fact that every animal we've ever had within a couple months is dead. Two birds on the same day died in a murder-suicide. I don't know what happened. In the cage, we showed up and two birds were dead. 
and we did carbon monoxide. It's still a mystery. I did CSI for two days on these things. The kids are like, let me touch. I'm like, no, don't touch it. I gotta keep the scene clear. I gotta figure this out. I don't know what happened to the birds. So birds died. We had chickens. They got mauled by raccoons one night. There was blood everywhere. My kids need counseling still because of it. It's like, Coons came up and it was just, they, the chickens didn't have a chance. They were outside in the middle of the night with just a lid over top. The raccoon's like, these are the dumbest people on the planet. Right? Well, I, he just had a haste. He threw these, these chickens everywhere. It was crazy. Uh, and there was this little robo thing. Anyways, so uh, I'm trying to keep these plants alive. And so anyways, point being, um, she's got these roses. And so she's clipping the roses. And, and I'm like, okay. And then we're, it's in the afternoon. I'm like, I don't know if these roses have been watered yet. And so I'm in the back. This has nothing to do with anything except now I get to the point. So now, so I'm watering these roses, and I hear my kids playing out in the cul-de-sac, and and then I looked over the fence, and they're gone. And I'm like, my kids don't just disappear. Like, like it's like my kids come up, they give an application if they want to go somewhere. It's like a thing, right? We're not like those parents, all right? We're like, you do whatever, we'll see you in the, you know, nighttime. All right, it's like, yeah, that was how I grew up. It's, you know, I knew what I did growing up, so it's not going to happen. So, uh, so... It's like you get home at these times, I know whatever. So anyway, so my kids, I don't hear them anymore, they call us that. I'm like, what's going on? I shut that thing off, saving these rows. And I'm like, I look over here and there's no kids, but there's this massive, this true story, we go, a, a brown UPS truck. And it goes, and it turns to my thing and then it goes, and it drives away really fast. And every crazy movie I've ever seen goes into my brain and I'm like, UPS dude has my kids in the back this is crazy. And I'm like, what is actually gonna happen? This UPS guy's abducted my children. So I'm like, okay, this is cool. So, so I'm like, okay. I run in and say, hey, Sienna, hey, man. I'm screaming their names all, I'm going into their bedrooms. I'm like, cause I'm, this is the crazy, why aren't they there anymore? I go in, I spend five minutes doing this, which is not good by the way, cause you gotta get right on that truck uh, statistically. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> So I'm like, I'm screaming around the house trying to figure it out, nothing, nothing, nothing. So finally, I'm like, okay, uh, I, 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 what am I gonna do? And I'm like, well, and I jumped in my car and I took off after the UPS show, okay? My wife's out buying flowers or something. And so I take off in the UPS and I'm looking for the, I'm like, I gotta get this guy and I'm gonna roll up on it, I'm gonna jump out, I'm gonna you know, put, do whatever, pound on it, whatever. And so I go around the corner and the UPS guy's just, they're just doing a delivery. And I'm like, okay, that's a bad strategy if he has my kids in the back. So he's probably innocent. Uh, so where are these kids, man? And so I'm like, what's going on? 10, 15 minutes later, I hear them coming up the street. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm about to call Aaron, FaceTime, get some advice, what's happening, what do I do? And uh, the kids come up, they're like, hey. and they're all eating ice creams. I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we found $10 and there was a night, they, they did this? This is, they chased the ice cream man truck, the truck down the street to get them. This is what, this is what they do. I sat there and I said, see, this is what crazy people do. They buy an ice cream truck. They ring the little bell and they said, oh, don't worry, don't worry. There was a woman there. I said, that's classic. That's exactly what I would do. All right, put a woman there. looks all innocent. Hey, children, come buy an ice cream. Boom, you're gone. All right, anyway, I did 10 minutes on what could happen. My point being, these kids are sinful. <laughs> depraved their souls are corrupt and they do bad things for their own selfish gain 
And that's you every single day. Every choice you make is for your own pleasure, your own joy, your own narcissism. What do you deserve by the God of the universe who is fully holy and all things? What do you deserve? You deserve heaven by default? No, you deserve the judgment of God, but he saves some. That's what Peter's trying to get to. And you get that straight according, which is a good thing, to the foreknowledge of God versus the foreknowledge of ourself. That becomes a good thing because as much as we might struggle with it, when we start talking about suffering, what is the better option that he doesn't know? Because that's how people have tried to deal with this. They've tried to say the world is so terrible. There's so much evil and suffering in the world. Here's the better solution. God doesn't know what's going to happen. So there's this guy who wrote a book uh, on open theism, and he talks about the idea, his name is Greg Boyd, that God limited himself in knowledge so that he wouldn't know that Hitler was going to be born and that Hitler was going to do what he was going to do. That way we get God off the hook for evil because God doesn't know. But you're just raising a bigger problem because now the God we're talking about is just like me and you. He knows nothing. He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but the Bible constantly pushes you away from that and goes, no, he moves the hearts of kings. He's the one in control. He's moving a story to a particular place. And just because there's suffering in the story, which we'll talk about uh, tomorrow, uh, uh, doesn't mean God's not in control anymore. It just might mean that our perspective is so small, we can't understand what's actually happening in the world. And so he's saying, according to the foreknowledge of God, now this is interesting because he does this little, uh, this is an aside, he does this Trinitarian thing. So people, you know, when Jehovah's Witnesses have come to your house, they go, oh, why do you believe in, uh, you know, in, in the Trinity? Why do you believe? Because partly, well, over and over in the Bible, it's true, uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, so on. but a pastor's like this, he, he hones in on all three persons of God, God the Father, God the Spirit, and Jesus, right? So you got Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally one, eternally distinct, and he says something now about each one of those, and he starts talking about the idea of what each of them do. And so you have, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, God the Father has this foreknowledge, this plan, this understanding, this knowledge. He's totally uh, omniscient. He knows all things. And it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So the word sanctification is this word, uh, it's like hagios. It means um, to be cleansed out, to become holy. It means that the, so God, God chooses, uh, God plans salvation. Um, the son accomplishes salvation and the spirit applies salvation. And the spirit then starts to actually clean you out. So you know those moments where you're like, this might be sinful. I have conviction about this. Maybe I'm living my life wrong. Maybe I'm doing this. Maybe I'm doing that. That's the work of the spirit. And so now your conversation begins, okay, what is the spirit actually doing in my life? The spirit is creating holiness in me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, creating the fruit of the spirit, creating me a desire. And this is what what Jared Packer points out in Knowing God, and I love this. He says, as you begin to become holy over time, here's what begins to happen. You begin to um, celebrate and rejoice in the things that God celebrates and to cry and weep and mourn at the thing that God mourns. So when you look in and our culture is celebrating stuff that God mourns, do you just judge it and share a social media post about it? Or do you actually weep? Do you actually mourn with God? 
That's when you know that your heart is beginning to become more like him. The work, the sanctifying work, the cleansing out work of the spirit in your life is to make you holy, to make you like Jesus. Have righteousness and kill sin. As John Owen said years ago, you better be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's not something to be played with. And so the spirit is doing this work. Now, the, the, the tribes that I roll in tend to be people who downplay the work of the spirit. Right, they tend to be people who are, you know, so you have like the Pentecostals who are great. Any Pentecostals in the room? Right, people are like afraid now with that setup. They're like, what's going on? I don't know. All right, so, so Pentecost, like these, these guys are the guys who saved me. Like, like well, God used them to save me. But they, they're passionate about Jesus. They love the work of the Spirit. That's what they do. Sometimes they overcook it and they start, you know, hey, try to heal everybody, do a bunch of crazy things, which is... Sometimes weird because people who claim to have healing ministries and they're on TV and they're dressed up like a spaceman and they're doing crazy healings. It's like, why don't you just go to children's hospital and do some stuff? Or why are you wearing glasses? Why don't you just touch your own eyeballs? Uh, so th th the reality is you have people kind of doing this bad stewardship with the reality of healing. But healing's a real thing. It's actually legit. It's not something bypass. It's actually the spirits doing amazing things. And then you have people over here who don't like the work of the spirit. Like, but, but here's the crazy thing. And... Uh, I'm uh, my my past is is pretty uh, academic. Like I wanted to be a scholar. I wanted to be a professor, a PhD. This is why I moved out to Vancouver uh, 15, 16 years ago. It was a two-year stop on the way to move to Oxford and do a PhD. And I wanted to sit in a room and read footnotes for the rest of my life and then write books and teach classes to people who just wanted to know the difference between a participle and a nominative and a pluperfect Greek verb. And they would all sit around and we'd all parse out every word of the New Testament. It'd be great. I mean, living the dream, man. We sitting around Oxford smoking a pipe or something like C.S. Lewis, I don't know. And I just like lived the dream, all right? And then, because here's the thing about footnotes, they never cheat on their wife. They never send you emails that they don't like the youth ministry in your church, whatever, they're just, they just sit there and you don't have to deal with their nonsense. And so that's what I wanted. And then God's like, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to plant a church. I'm like, no, people are the worst, right? So, so we started this church and, and I, we, the, the stuff we've seen the, the, that the Holy Spirit has done, like it's crazy. The Holy Spirit is alive and well it's not an it, it's a he. He's not a it, he's a he. All right, and, and, and it's a, it's a per, he's a person. And he speaks, and he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he gives you compulsions and ideas. And like literally there's been moments in my life where I have sat, um, and there was a, a, a few years ago, a woman drove into the church office, walked into the room and said, um, hey, I feel like I was driving by the office and I needed someone to pray for me. And I'm like, okay, and this doesn't usually happen with me. There's been a few times in my life where I can just like see through your soul. Like, I know you're freaking out a little bit. Please, no, I'm tired. I haven't heard anything you've said in 10 minutes. So, uh, like, 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 there's moments where I'm just like, I won't remember your name, but I can see everything about your life. And so this woman comes in and she's like, I need prayer. And I'm like, I start to pray for her. And all of a sudden, I'm like, boom, you need to stop cheating on your husband with your best friend. And she's like, sorry, what? Now, that's happened in my life a few times where there's no possible way. There's no expert. I don't know this woman from Eve, all right? And I'm like, now I know what you're needing. And she's weeping. And she's like, oh, my goodness. And she's telling me all these things. I mean, this divine knowledge. Now, there's sometimes I don't have divine knowledge. I told that guy 
her, uh, the woman or her husband was dead and I had the wrong guy. That was a really bad day. But so sometimes the knowledge goes away. It's not always there. All right. We mourned his death for 45 minutes. Wrong guy. He got him back. Um, but... But, uh, but, but you, I can see, and, I, and, and the Holy Spirit told me things. And these moments happen because the Holy Spirit is alive and well. And so, so one, of the, one of the big scholars that I've read in my life and kind of was responsible for changing my life is this guy named N.T. Wright. And uh, N.T. Wright, all of his scholarly work, I read it back in the, when I was first at Bible college, changed the whole direction, made me want to understand the Bible and, and teach it to people. So I was like, okay. So I read every book N.T. Wright's ever written. I can tell you what he thinks about everything, blah, blah, blah. So... I'm not really big into like hanging out with Christian celebrities and do it. I don't really care. But uh, a few months ago, this guy goes, hey, N.T. Wright's in town. I'll you to teach a class and you want to go out for dinner with him. I'm like, boom, we're going to go out for dinner. Yes, done. So we go out for dinner like a week or so ago and sit down with N.T. Wright. And I thought he was going to be like this pretentious old British man. You know, he's like, hello, Mark, Canadian. You know, give me like one, like I'm better than you, one-liners, you know. It's just, you know, I'm there. I'm like, hey, N.T. Wright. And he'd be like, uh, whatever, I'll have a red wine. Like, whatever, he's just going to be all, like, English. And uh, so I was like, okay, it's going to be like that. So we go out, and he was nothing like that. He was, like, laughing, he was, like, leaning in, oh, telling crazy story. I was telling him crazy stories. He was, blah. He's, like, he was crazy. So anyway, at one point, he tells me, he goes, Mark, I have this man that I fully truck. I won't do the English thing because it's like a full five-minute thing. I got all over it. And so uh, he goes, there's this guy who lives in my basement, and he's the smartest dude at Oxford. Okay? He's this totally cerebral guy, exegete. He's a Kierkegaardian scholar. All right? So if you've ever read one page of Kierkegaard, you want to just run away. You don't even understand what he's saying in English, let alone. I mean, it's, this guy, is, he's, he exegetes Kierkegaard okay, for a living. So he's the most cerebral. He doesn't buy any of this crazy Christian nonsense of dumb things that Christians do and did nothing. You know, send me more money. I can buy a jet. Because You know that guy who's trying to get money for a jet? And then they said, why do you need another jet? And he's like, because the devil doesn't want me riding on an airplane with all those demons that run up and down the aisle when I'm going to speak at a church. I need to be in a special plane that's anointed for the Lord so I can get there and speak properly. That was actually a legitimate which I've tried to use for my speaking traveling and it never works. I'm like, I can't fly Delta, there's demons on that thing. Right? Uh, so anyway, so he, uh, so, he, uh, so he says, this guy is like, he hates all that stuff. He's totally academic guy, okay. He marries this girl who's like this charismatic spirit person. All right? She's right, she loves experiences, right? And that's what charismatics love. They just love, they love experiences of the Lord. Like, I want to hear from him. I want to talk to him. I want him to tell me. I'm going to go pray for that person. I'm going to go. And that was, that when I first became a Christian, that was my life for three years. That's all I did. I'd read the Bible, and I'd do what the Holy Spirit told me to do. I'd walk up to strangers, random people. I'd be, boom, this is what you need. This is what you did. And I'd get it wrong. I'd get it right. It was, it was great. So... This, uh, this, uh, this woman loved that stuff. So she married this guy. So they go to this church service. And he's like, let's go to like a, you know, a high Anglican church. We should use it. And she's like, no, no, we need to go to this church over here. It's crazy. It's charismatic. And so he's like, oh, here we go. So they go in, okay? And they sit down. And this guy's doing healing stuff. He's like, and all of a sudden, this pastor says, listen, I feel like there's someone in this audience that needs their tooth to be healed. Right? And his wife goes, that's you, that's you, right? Like, hey, that's you, your tooth's hurting. She's like, shut up, shut up. It's not hurting anymore. Leave it alone, all right? I am not that guy. I am not, do not do this. 
All right, and she's like, no, no, totally. You need to tell him. You need to tell him it's your tooth. It's his tooth. And 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 he's like, do not do this. I swear, never do this. All right. And he's like, I Kierkegaard would hate this. <laughs> so, don't do this. Fine. So she doesn't say anything. She doesn't say anything. And if, now, here's the funny thing about charismatic stories, right? The funny thing about charismatic stories, it's like people who believe in aliens. It's like, I would totally believe this if it wasn't you telling me this, all right? Because it's always weird people, right? It's never like, it's never like the legit guy who's like uber scholarly and conservative and then he's like, hey, this crazy thing happened. It's never that guy. It's always the wacko. The spirit told me to do something. Like, eh, I totally believe this if it wasn't you. So, um, so he goes home. No joke. This Kierkegaardian scholar goes home and goes to brush his teeth and dude has a gold tooth. What? N.T. Wright's telling me this, okay? Not alien man, right? N.T. Wright is telling me I saw the guy's gold tooth. He lives in my basement. He doesn't believe in any of this stuff. And neither do I, Mark. Neither do I. And now the guy's got a gold tooth. What is happening? Anyways, I share that because the Holy Spirit can do crazy stuff, right? That's the point. Crazy stuff. You can't, you can't fit God as some limited thing of this is what he does, this is what he did. Because I look at every story about gold teeth and glitter flying around. There's people, they're like, look, and God showed up at our church service, right? And they got YouTube videos of glitter just going this in a circle. And I'm like, yeah, and you read the YouTube comments because the people on YouTube are the greatest piece of humanity. Uh, and, and they're like, if that's the glory of God, he is lame. All right, this is like glitter going, yeah. It's like, dude, your HVAC system's broken. Fix it, right? Because you've got like these, mo but the Holy Spirit still sanctifies, still speaks and moves and changes you in your life. And Peter starts the whole conversation saying, I'm going to get to a whole bunch of stuff. But you've got to understand the work of God first before I get into what it has to do with you. You're so quick to jump to you. What does it have to do with me and my trials and my suffering and my life and my salvation and my family? He's going to get to all of that. I mean, we probably won't get to all of it, but he gets to all of it in the book. But he starts out by going, the most important thing, and this is A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer would spend seven hours a day praying. I don't know how efficient that was, but that's what he did. And he said, you know what the most important thing about a human is? What they think about when they think about God. Because getting that right is the most important thing that filters down to everything else about your life. That's why Peter starts the whole book by saying, you got to get God right. All right. So a full Unitarian version of God, like say in Judaism, for instance, or Islam, you have a Unitarian version of God where he is one. He is one unit and there is no... Uh, sense of multiplication in him, no sense of relationship, community, anything in him. Or you have uh, polytheistic religions like Hinduism or so on, where you have hundreds of millions of gods. So those are the two poles. Christianity comes along and says we believe in one God, but there's a plurality within that God, which means when the Bible says God is love, this is what's beautiful about it. In Islam, with a full Unitarian version of God, uh, for God to ever love 
you have to create people first because there's no relationship yet. There's just one God. But in the Christian version, God can be loved by definition because there's always the Trinitarian version of God. There's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit forever and eternally loving and he births the world not out of a lonely desire of relationship. He already has relationship. He births the world out of love, out of a desire to birth it not for his sake, I mean, for the sake of his glory and all of that, but not because he was lonely. He already had this Trinitarian, this beautiful thing about Peter starting this way. He's like, I need you to understand who God is, how he functions, who he is, how he's defined. And then he says this. Uh, So he's got uh, three things. He's got the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the last one is the for obedience to Jesus Christ for sprinkling with his blood. So there's this idea of obedience. It's not just faith in Jesus. It's actually obedience to Jesus. That's the hard part because what would be really easy is if I pitched Christianity to you and said, here's what it is. Pray a magical mantra. Say this prayer. Boom. You're good. Going to heaven, baby. Go get another boat. That's it. Because All you've done is you've created dualism. You pray this prayer. It's a magical prayer. You believe these doctrines and you're set. You go to heaven. But Peter doesn't say that. He talks about this word, obedience. See, we don't talk about that enough. He doesn't say faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, of course. Obedience to Jesus Christ. Are you going to be there in the end? Are you going to be obedient to him in the small things of your life? Are you going to actually get to the end? Because the first day is really easy. The first day of a marriage is easy. The first day of uh, anything is easy. The question is, what are you like on the last day? Do you actually get to the end where you stand before Jesus and you were obedient to him in all things? Or did you just have faith in him and then you moved on with your life? This is the hard part. Uh, This week there was a... uh, an article written by a guy named uh, Joshua Harris. You guys don't know who Joshua Harris is? How many of you grew up and you read I Kissed Dating Goodbye? All right, Aaron raised that. All right, we burned that thing when we got, when I started dating her. I was like, this will not work. Uh, so I Kissed Dating Goodbye. How many people, don't be embarrassed. How many people read that book growing up? Yeah, okay, so a ton of ladies, all right? All right, the guys are like, no, this concept does not work. All right, so... Uh, Joshua Harris, he was a big deal. And I think it was in the 90s, some point, he wrote a book. It was all about courtship. Uh, he's not going to date. He only dates for marriage. And there's no kissing until you're married. And then there's, it's a communal thing where every, your family and your friends do it communally. And you all kind of, you date together and then blah, blah, blah. So he created this thing. It sold more than a million copies, all right? In the conservative Christian world, it was the book, right? It was the, I don't know what the book is now, but it was whatever the book is now, it was that book, right? Everybody read it. Joshua Harris became really rich off this book as a young guy. It was a sincere book about what he was trying to deal with. Then he became a pastor down in the States uh, and became a very successful pastor, great preacher and teacher and yada, yada. Anyways, a few years ago, uh, moved to region actually to do some school and uh, just this week released a statement um, where he said, I mean, last week he released a statement that um, him and his wife were getting a divorce. And then this week he says this, the information that was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. 
Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. So here's a guy who was Christian celebrity number one, and this week tells the world, I'm not a Christian anymore. Because the question of our life is whether we get to the end. Not whether you start, are you there on the last day? That's what Peter's worried about. He's worried about this word, your obedience in the small things, in the big things, in the end. Are you obedient to Jesus? And then he says this, verse four. Okay, we're four verses in chapter one. We're almost done. It's perfect. Um, May grace, undeserved favor, and peace, which is what we all want in our life. It it, it defines everything that we want in life is peace, especially uh, men in the context of marriage. Men's paradigmatic function in a marriage is to create peace. That's why when there's a fight on the table, all he's thinking about is what will make this fight go away and bring peace back. I don't even care about actually solving this issue. I just want her to stop fighting. Okay? Um, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I mean, this, this whole idea, God wants to give you peace. How are you ever going to get peace and fulfillment and measurement in life? Uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. I love this word um, because... Here's a beautiful thing, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, end, I'll end here. Um, here's a beautiful thing about mercy. Um, some of us have this concept of God um, that we got from whatever. If we, if we misread the Bible as a whole, where he's just a God maybe of judgment and we don't understand that he functions in the defining way of 1 John where he is love where he shows compassion, even in the, the feeding of the 5,000 story that I was doing yesterday, I was blown away. The reason Jesus feeds them is because he has compassion on the crowd. He looks out at this crowd, he has compassion. He has love for them. And so he says, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to teach you. And it's, it's his love. And some people just need to hear that. Here's what I mean by that. I'll, I'll tell you a story and then I'll pray for you. Uh, about, um, this is probably about a month ago. I get an email from a woman and she says, hey, listen, um, I need my son to come in and meet with you. And the reason he wants to come meet with you, well, the reason I want him to meet with you, he doesn't really want to meet with you, but the reason I want him to meet with you, and I get some of these emails sometimes, um, is because you uh, can kind of connect with him because he's basically, you know, I don't know that he follows Jesus anymore. And, you know, so basically pull out your magic passer wand and and then boom, everybody will be okay. And I'm like, okay, sweet. So I said, okay, I'll meet with him. So nine o'clock in the morning, this guy shows up in my office. And he's in workout gear, and he's got, like, this solemn face on. Like, bro, I am not in, like, my mommy sent me, basically. And he comes in, and he's this big guy. He sits down on my couch, and he goes, uh, listen, I don't want to waste your time. He goes, uh, uh, I was a Christian growing up as a kid, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, um, I started taking classes in philosophy at university, and I became an existentialist. Uh, I love Freud. I love Foucault. Um, I love Camus, and I don't believe in any of this anymore, and there's nothing you can really do. I mean, I'm a philosophy teacher now. I'm a professor at a university. I'm just becoming a TA, 30 years old, and I'm done. And he said, but for the last six months, I can't sleep at night. I have, like, this overwhelming anxiety about life, and I sit there in my bed, and I stare at the ceiling. I'm like, I just, I know the universe is a dark, cold 
nothing. I know there's no God, um, but I'm, I'm anxious. I can't sleep. I just have this like, and he goes, so the other night I walked outside my house and I was sitting outside staring at the stars. It was two o'clock in the morning and for a split second, a peace came over me that I can't explain to you. It was like a veil got torn back for a split second and all the love and joy and, 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 and pleasure that I could ever imagine, boom, all of a sudden hit me and then it was gone. And I don't know what that was, but I know that God doesn't exist, but I know that this moment happened and I've been living in anxiety ever since because I know my death is coming, the universe is cold, there's nowhere to go. And I'm, I'm kind of freaking out a bit. I live with anxiety and now I'm dry. I can't figure it out. And as he's talking, the spirit, just like with me and you, told, <laughs> yeah, okay, told me what to say to him. And so I'm sitting there and I'm looking at him. I'm waiting for him to stop talking. And he's ding, 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 ding. And I looked at him and I said, you know, there's a book. He goes, so what do you want to say? Give me the pastor thing. I told me stupid and shut up. No, I'm saying. So I said, uh, I said, there's this book on my shelf. It's called The God-Shaped Brain. I said, it's by a psychologist who does studies on people's brain. He sets up little things on their brain and he evaluates how their brain works. And I said, you know, the brain is a very powerful thing. I said, the, the book opens with a story about a guy who comes to the hospital and they can't figure out why he's sick. He's dying. He's on the brink of death. And finally, he pulls, his family's there, and he pulls the doctor aside. He said, here's what happened. I don't want any of my family to know this, but here's what happened. Four days ago, a witch put a spell on me in the park, and she put a frog into my stomach, and this frog is killing me. And the doctor's like, oh, I know what to do. Don't worry about it. And the doctor goes down to the pond in front of the hospital, grabs a frog, walks up to the room, says everybody's got to clear out, pretends to cut the guy's stomach open, pulls a frog out so the guy sees it, puts it in a bag and says, don't worry, you'll be fine. Two days later, guy walks out of the hospital. And he starts out by saying, here's the power of the brain. And I looked at this guy and I told him that story and I said, you know, you know what the thesis of the book is? And he goes, no, I don't really care. I said, the thesis of the book is, if you have a concept of God where he is judge, and that's how you grew up, and that's how you think about him, do you know that your brain actually functions in the frontal cortex vastly different than when you think about him as mercy, and you think about him as love? That literally, he wired people's brains up and fed them information about love and compassion and mercy and grace and different sides of their brain lit up. And the parts of the brain that lit up when he fed them information about judge is depression, anxiety. And I said, here's the reality. You as a little kid got a terrible version of God and you're pushing against him right now and you need a version where he loves you more than you could ever imagine. His mercy will forgive you more than the amount of sins you could ever do. And you will actually begin to function different. 
He stared at me. I talked for three minutes. He starts to cry. After crying, looks up at me and says, you know that feeling I had at two o'clock in the morning where the veil got pulled back? As you were talking, I felt it again. And then he says, where's this book? And I handed the book, I hate giving away books. But I handed the book and he gets up and he looks at me and he goes, you're right. God does love me and here's the crazy thing. Why was the solution to my existential problem the most basic thing that I was told in Sunday school growing up, which is that God loves me. How is the solution? Because here's the thing, Mark, I'm smarter than you. I'm sorry, but I'm smarter than you. And I knew you couldn't outsmart me in this conversation. And you didn't. You told me the thing I already knew, and that's the thing I need. He walks out of my office. It was 58 minutes long, that meeting. Some of you need to hear the concept that God is merciful because you're living in the guilt and shame of the mistakes you made last week, last night, this morning, whatever. And Peter, right off the bat, wants to go, you better get a good concept of God. He's Trinitarian. And he has mercy and his desire for you is grace and peace in your life that they be multiplied to you. Not that you're anxious and fearful but this is what salvation does for you. Father, I am extremely aware that I think about you wrongly at times and pray that we understand actually who you are, how you function versus our bad versions of it. And that that concept would start to filter down to a life change in us that would change how we think, it would change how we feel, it would change how we're married, it would change how we work, it would change how we deal with temptation. Let us, Holy Spirit, speak to us, actually give us power to defeat the things that you want to defeat and to celebrate and rejoice in the things that you want us to rejoice in so that we can actually be successful at being on mission for you in the short time you've given us. Give us that perspective where we would be willing to sacrifice anything for the good and the advancement of the gospel. Even going, sacrificing, like Peter did, ultimately with his own life. And as he writes these words, let us be inspired by that reality and that work in us. And let us get to the end. Let every person in this room actually get to the end. Let us be obedient to the last day not just have begun this relationship with you, but actually stand before you having finished it well. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Caitlin's got a couple of announcements for you guys. Can you have a big thing?